Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Tim Rogers, lead pastor of Grace Point Church. Um, thanks for being here this morning. If you're listening later online or via CD, thank you for doing that. We hope you're safe wherever you are and what you're doing. Um, before we get going in the seven, uh, the final seventh uh, part of a seven-part series, brief announcement, advertisement. Next Sunday, we've been talking about it for about a month or so. Next Sunday is a big Sunday for us here. We have Love You, which we have over 40-some people signed up for right now, which we're excited about. If you have not signed up yet, this is for anybody basically who can breathe or who has um, an interest at all in relationships, um, knowing really kind of getting, exploring God's heart for love and relationships. So if you're single, thinking maybe someday you'll be dating, maybe someday you want to get married, it's about how to be the right person, not necessarily how to find Mr. or Mrs. Right. If you're married, divorced, separated in whatever stage, kind of dealing with your own um, focus on the Lord as well as how you understand your emotional and spiritual health um, in that state, okay? So love you. That's next Sunday night at 6 o'clock, I believe, downstairs. It'll be a lot of fun, um, good times uh, down there. All right, so sign up online if you haven't done that yet. Also, next Sunday morning, we're transitioning from the 7 to a new series called Home Improvement. Uh, this will be a team teaching series with myself, Pastor Joel, and Chuck Holt, director of the Factory Ministries, in which we're going to be looking at a variety of ways in which we can see um, the role and the importance of the role of the husband, the wife, the marriage, um, the home, in God's design for the world and how the world kind of functions and what your role is in that process. An interactive series with Q&A coming afterwards um, with text uh, messages that you can send into us as well as um, a discussion that we'll have with that. Okay, so fun week next week, uh, March 9. All right, now we're back here to the 7. I want to thank Pastor Joel for taking the last week um, on greed. I really wanted to, but he said, no, I've got to have it. Right. <laughs> Thank you for laughing at that dumb one. All right. Um, hey, we were away, and we appreciate the time to be away and get back and be refreshed by that time. Um, but we're in this series. It's about the seven deadly sins, and it's not just about sin. It's, it's also about um, confession and kind of how we come through that. And just to set this thing up again one last time, as we've talked about in this series, we were created for, we were made for the garden, or we're created in mint condition, kind of up here is how we represent that. But we tend to live down here in the mire or the muck um, of the reality of our sin. And we can come to think that it's normal to live in the sinful world that we um, live in. But the reality is we were made for more than what we experience. And so what we've said in this series is that there's some times when you kind of catch a glimpse of what could be a little bit more of life, if you will, some inspirational moments, whether that be when you're away at a cabin or you see the sunrise over the mountains after a long hike or you fall in love for the first time and you have a moment where just all is right in the world and you kind of catch a glimpse, I believe, of things as they were meant to be, the world as it was meant to be, kind of better than what you experience on a normal basis with the muck and the mire of all the sin stuff that we have. Now, one of the things that we're trying to communicate is that what God gives to us as a gift is this thing called confession, which kind of helps us, as we step into confession, helps us see someone whom we can become that is better, if you will, than who we are without confession. And that confession is, in a way, a gift from God, a tool from God to help us to see uh, when we get rid of, as the author to Hebrews talks about, the sin that so easily entangles us. 
Confession helps us untangle some of that sin and live in a way that otherwise we would not. And to come to realize, boy, this life that I live in the muck and the mire of kind of the selfishness, the just me-centered world is not the way that I was designed to live. And so we're talking about the seven, right? Now, when we talk about confession, I want to keep it really simple because this, I think we can make it more complicated than it needs to be. We wonder, what does confession look like? How do I do confession? How do I confess? Do I need to have, and if you think about the word confession, sometimes you might think, uh, man, I got to be breaking down in tears and have some violinist in the background playing some special music with a sunset in the background and all my world comes crashing down and it's finally time to confess. I did it. You know, I can't believe I did it. And a moment of great failure and shame is often what we might think of if you think about confession. But I want to I kind of keep it really simple this morning when, I, when I'm thinking about confession. Um, and that is two things I just want to share. Number one, when I think about confession, the first thing I think about is this. Have a conversation, okay? Have a conversation. So, for example, for me, this is what that looks like. For me, each week that we've had each of these seven deadly sins, I have had an intentional conversation with a friend. And it's really not been that difficult. It's simply been, hey, I mean, we talked about anger this week. Let me tell you where I'm at with that. Here's what I'm wrestling with. Here's where that drilled down below the surface for me. And here's where I'm struggling. Man, we talked about pride this week. Let me tell you where that hit me. Let me tell you what I feel like I need to tell you to help you keep me accountable. And let's talk about your life. And we're going to talk about another sin today, and I'm going to do that again this week with this same friend. I'm going to sit down and have a conversation. You might see us somewhere. Maybe you walk by. Maybe you see the conversation. It's not going to be a, you know, no-holds-barred conversation where we're just tearing up and crying and hugging each other and all that. Nothing like that. It's just a conversation in which we're together saying, hey, we want to become more intentional in understanding how in the world this stuff kind of gets under the surface of our lives. And as we do that, we both realize, you know what, there is incredible value in having the conversation related to confession. Because words are the tools that we use to create our reality. You've heard me say that before. Things become real when we put words to them, right? Like when you first heard your girlfriend or boyfriend say, I love you, like, it's real. Like, it's real because you said it. You felt it for a long time, but now it's real. So words are the tools we use to create reality. Confession, the confessional words, create the reality that allows us to kind of break out of the sin that entangles us. Simple, okay? Have a conversation. Number two, Confess small things to big groups and big things to small groups. Okay? And, and that's just kind of a general principle of wisdom. Many of you know that, um, but this is just kind of a reminder. You may, if you feel like, man, I got something really heavy on my heart, this is deep, this is strong, this is big, and you roll that thing out to your Sunday school class next time you meet, or in our elective session next week, or you know, in the grocery store, okay? You know, that won't go well. You know, <laughs> like, whoa, we weren't ready for that, because this is, a, this is a, a, a big group. And that's a big thing, and I'm not sure we can do big things in big groups, but we can do big things in small groups, okay? We can do big things in small groups. We can do kind of smaller, kind of ease into things in bigger groups, okay? So keeping it simple on confession, all right? Keeping it simple. Have a conversation. Big things, small groups, small things, big groups. All right, fair enough? Wonderful. Love the enthusiasm. All right, so that's confession. Now, here, here's where we're at. We're in the seven, and we're kicking into a new um, and final sin, all right? And this one is funny because this is uh, one that at first glance you might look at and think, um, boy, I don't know if this deserves to be in the category of a deadly sin. And it's this sin called sloth, all right? The sin called sloth. Now, 
There's an animal named sloth, which is a whole lot of fun to explore and look at. All right, how many of you liked sloths when you were kids? They hang upside down and all that. All right. Come on, seriously, am I the only one? Thank you. Thank you. And they're very intriguing to study, very intriguing animals. I'm not going to get into all that I've learned actually about sloths this week, but there's a lot of good stuff online about sloths. That has nothing to do with where I'm going. I just wanted to tell you that. All right. So sloths. Here's what we think about when we think about the word sloth. Immediately we think that sloth has to do with this concept, being lazy about work, right? Being lazy about work. That, man, that's just really what sloth is. I mean, sloth are the, the people who are like the animal sloth. Like, they move. Did you know a sloth can move six and a half feet a minute? It's awesome. Isn't it awesome? Imagine that from here to there. Just be a minute, literally. Just a minute, and I'll be there. All right, sloth, we think being lazy about work. Okay? And, and biblically, okay, there's some support for that concept. All right, let's go to Proverbs 6. We'll just look at it up here because Proverbs 6 supports this idea. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. We continue. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a bandit, and scarcity like an armed man. Yeah, all right. Ooh. Okay, now some of you whose greatest accomplishment to date is that you can like burp the alphabet. Okay. This is a section of scripture you need to get a hold of, all right? All right? I mean, seriously, you just need to get a hold of this and realize this is a reality, and some of us need this little nudge, and you might need to give this to somebody lovingly and a little nudge, okay? Work and hard work is good, okay? Biblically, we can support that. Boom, go to the ant. Look at the ant. I mean, you talk about excuses for not working. Imagine that. Hey, imagine a world where we walk out of here, okay, and about a third of us get stepped on right, on the way to our car, and then we, the rest of us get home and like half of our homes are washed away because we built them near a gutter or something like that, right? I mean, can you imagine that kind of world? You talk about an excuse not to want to work. Well, no one's given me advice. No one's given me perspective. There's no leadership around here. And, and look at the ant is what the, the, the author of the Proverbs is saying, Solomon in this case, saying, look at the ant. He can make all the excuses in the world, and he works hard. So we think of sloth. We think lazy about work, biblically supported, good. We even think, even if you're not a Christian, let's say even if you don't believe in the Bible, this is an ethic that goes beyond Christianity and, and goes into a, a kind of a moral fiber for people who like to work hard, including people um, who have built maybe some of the cars that you drive. Henry Ford had this to say about work and hard work. He said this, work is our sanity, our self-respect, our salvation. Through work and work alone may health, wealth, and happiness be secure. Now, that's going a little far for, for me as someone who's a follower of Jesus Christ. I don't sign on to all of that, but it, it's simply to point out that there's this strain of this emphasis of work hard in America, okay? Work hard in the business world. Work hard in what we do. And sloth kind of cuts against the grain of all of that. And we look at people who we think are lazy about work, and we're like, oh, like, I can't, what are they going to do? Like, they're never going to make it. They need to get out of bed earlier, you know. They need to, right? Sloth being lazy about work. But, but think about this with me for a minute. If sloth is being lazy about work, if that's the problem, then the solution is being crazy about work. 
If you, the problem is you're, you're lazy. The solution is ratchet it up. Start working hard. Get moving. Get it going. Now, now, when I put it that way, you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think there's some people whom I've known who have been incredible workaholics, who have ruined their families, who have worked so hard that they've destroyed their own lives, their own health in the process, whose kids look at them with great uh, bitterness because they were never around when they needed them to be around. And so if we think about this for a minute, if sloth is being lazy about work, if that's the problem, then clearly the solution is work your tail off. And the more that you work, the better you are. Right? If that's the problem, that you don't work enough, the solution is simple, work more. And the more you work, the better, if that's all that sloth is. But as I've been looking at sloth, come to the discovery, that's not really what sloth is about at all. I'd like to suggest to you, and I'd like to kind of show this to you, and you can sit there and you can approve or disapprove and engage or disengage on this concept. But here's the thing. I believe that you can be an incredibly lazy person and be slothful. And I believe that you can be an extreme overworker, hard worker, and be slothful. I believe that sloth is true of people on both ends of the continuum. And in fact, that work is simply the low-hanging fruit. It's the easy thing to pick on, but it's not really the issue when it comes to sloth. Now, to understand this, we have to back it up in our church history and go back to about the 4th century when the church fathers are putting together this concept of the seven deadly sins. What did they mean when they used this word sloth? And here's what I'd like to suggest to you. I want to illustrate it, then I want to show it to you biblically. That sloth, and here's how I'd love for you to think about sloth. Instead of this, being lazy about work, I'd love for you to think about sloth as being lazy about love. Sloth as being lazy about love. Rebecca DeYoung wrote a book called Glittering Vices. It's a review of the seven deadly sins. And in that, she gave an analogy that I just want to share with you because I find it so helpful and so spot on for describing this very phenomenon. So here's what she wrote. It's just about a two, three minute analogy. She, she wrote this. Imagine a typical husband and wife. In general, they have a relationship of genuine love and friendship. And one evening, they quarrel at dinner time and head off to opposite corners of the house for the rest of the night. They find it much easier to maintain that miserable distance and alienation from each other than to do the work of apologizing, forgiving, and reconciling. Learning to live together and love each other well after a rift requires giving up their anger their desire to have their own way, their insistence on seeing the world only from his or her own perspective. Saying, I'm sorry, takes effort, but it is not simply the physical work of walking across the house and saying the words that each resists. It might be that this is another wearying version of the same fight that they've been having for years, and it doesn't feel like they're getting any nearer to resolving it. What's the point of going through the motions of apologizing one more time? Do they want the relationship? Yes, they do. Neither would renege on their commitment to each other, but do they want to do what it takes to be in that relationship? Do they want to honor its claims on them? Do they want to learn genuine unselfishness in the ordinary daily task of living together? Well, maybe tomorrow. For now, at least, each spouse wants the night off to wallow in his or her 
own selfish loneliness. This is true especially when love takes effort or feels like a formality or an empty ritual. Point being, love in any love relationship stakes a claim on your life and my life, doesn't it? Love stakes a claim. And so for any of you, and a couple of you are getting married this year, some of you may be getting this year yet, married this year and you don't know it yet, for anyone who walks up an aisle, whether it's this one or anyone, and they come up here to get married, what we often say to them is, today is when I dies. Today is when that I word in your vocabulary needs to go away because love stakes a claim on your life. It stakes a claim on your identity, doesn't it? For those of you who are married, you understand what I'm saying. When you walk down the aisle and you say, I do, I do what? I do commit, right? I do vow, I do promise to reorient life. It's no longer about me, it's about us, and it's about you. That love stakes a claim on your life and my life that my identity has got to change. And when we are lazy about what love calls us to do, we can become either distracted and hyper-busy by pouring ourselves into our work, or we we can become apathetic, uncaring, and uncompassionate, if that's a word, about anything that is happening. And so I'd like to suggest that sloth is being lazy about love, not lazy about our work, okay? Now, the question is this. Not only does this happen in marriage, but the question is, how does this relate to our relationship with God? What happens when we make that commitment, if you will, to say, okay, my life is not my own. I am going to follow my Savior. Now, from here on in the message, if you are in that category where you have said sometime in your life that I need to follow God, I want to turn my life over to Christ, if you will. I believe in Jesus as my Savior. I confess my sin. I turn to him. He is my Savior, him alone. I want my life to be about him. If you are in that category, I'm talking to you. If you're not and you're just kind of trying to figure out faith in God, okay, you can watch, listen, engage, and kind of observe. But this is now I'm going to be speaking to those particularly who said that I want my life to be about Jesus Christ, and I'm following him with my life. Because here's what happens. In the book of Galatians, excuse me, chapter 2, here's what we read about people like that who have committed to following Jesus. Here's what Paul wrote. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. He's describing what happens when we take our faith and move it from us and place it into Jesus. And he's using the imagery of crucifixion to say, I have taken the eye of me and I've placed it, kind of placed it on the cross, and that eye has been crucified. It's no longer I now who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. A complete identity shift for you and for me when it comes to what we do and how we respond to our Savior complete identity shift. All of a sudden, there is a claim that is made on my life. And it's no longer what I would like to do, but it's what God wants to do through me and my choice to honor the love of God or not. My choice to respond to his love that drew me or not. I want to take you to a passage, and this will be our main one. If you have your Bible with me, I'd like you to turn to um, the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter 
uh, chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew around you. It's Second uh, Peter is toward the end of that, that Bible, the last third of your Bible there in the New Testament. Um, and Peter is, is writing, and he begins in the second, Peter is a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. Um, he begins in the second letter that he wrote, uh, right after the introduction, right after he introduces himself. In chapter two, uh, 1, excuse me, verse 3. He begins by setting up the context in the, the verses 3 to 8 will be where we're at this morning. And he sets a context um, for how we are to see kind of God's draw um, of us and then our response to him. Okay? God's draw on us and, and our response to him. In other words, this section is trying to set up for us um, what role does God have in this new creation that I am and what role do I have in this new creation, when I, when I turn my life over to God, okay? So here's verse 3 of chapter 1 of Second Peter. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. I want to pause in that verse. I, I want you to notice in that verse who the active person is in that verse. The active person person. Check it out again. Read it with me, noting his divine power has given us. So God has given to us. God is active in giving. He has given to us everything we need for a life of godliness through our knowledge of him. Again, now who's active? Who called us? So he called us by his own glory and goodness. There is a clear focus that Peter has here reminding us that the kind of the you didn't start the fire in your heart for godliness. If you have a desire for God, what Peter's saying is that fire wasn't sparked because you were faithful in devotions. It wasn't sparked because you went to a retreat. It's not sparked because you're good at church attendance or you can sing in the worship team or you can preach on Sunday mornings. It wasn't sparked because of that at all. That fire in your heart for God was started by him. Okay? That he is the one who called Verse 3, he's the one who called, and he's the one who's given you, given me, life right there. He's the one who's given the, the power, divine power needed for life and godliness. So at the very beginning, the very beginning of how do I respond to God's love, how do I think about sloth this way, we need to understand that God is the one who started the fire, if you will. God is the one who called, led, pulled, directed. That this is his deal, that the power for making this happen comes from him. And he continues in verse 4. Through these, again, he has given us, so again, he's the giver, we're the receiver, he's given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So the things that we want to kind of get away from, get away from in the world, God has given us this draw, this pull, this invitation into himself. And again, it's not because he's looked at you and said, I know that you're going to be faithful. I know you're going to be at church regularly. I know that you're going to have your kids come. I know that you're going to be good at work and you're going to be consistent in talking about the Lord at work. I mean, I, that is not in play. In fact, in verse 4, as we see, we don't even have access. We don't even have access to participate in the divine nature, if you will, unless God is the one who gives that. So I really want to underscore that at the beginning, that God is the one who draws us and brings us and kind of starts the fire in our hearts. But then, verse 5 is an interesting verse. 
Verse 5 is interesting. Because now Peter takes it and he's like, okay, God is the one who starts that fire. For this very reason, make every effort to, what's that word there in the NIV? That next word? To add, to add, to add. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. Okay, so I'm a little confused, Peter. So God is the one, verse 3, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. In other words, the fire, he's the one who starts it, okay? And now, because of that, make every effort. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness. And add to your goodness knowledge. And add to that knowledge, self-control, and perseverance, brotherly kindness, godliness, love. Add to it. I'm confused, Peter. You're saying... God is the one who's given me. He's drawn me. He started the fire. And now because of that, you want me to do something. Yes. But he started it. Yes. So I can't do this without him starting that right. So in other words, God's kind of started that fire. You keep that baby rolling. But remember, you never started it in the first place. Okay? You didn't, you weren't good enough to start it. You didn't have the wisdom to know how to start it. He drew you and he started. Now add to that. Make that fire even bigger. Make it even hotter. Make it even stronger. Make it last even longer. Add to what God has given you. Add to that, boom, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And then he says in verse 8, this is so powerful in verse 8, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For if you possess these qualities in an increasing measure, they will keep you from being a sloth. They will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your walk. As you add to what God has started, as you add goodness, knowledge, self-control, the kicking of a habit that you've been waiting to kick, perseverance, getting back to pushing through the things that you haven't been willing to push through, brotherly kindness, a care for the people right around you, godliness, that attitude, that conviction, that what God wants is it, and love. As you add to the fire these things, you're going to keep your life becoming ineffective, unproductive, in other words, slothful. This is what it's about. So, sloth, being lazy about love. Because what God does for us in Peter's description in verse 3 is he draws us in, he calls us, he leads us, he brings us into a relationship with him, kind of warms that fire up and says, come on, come on, come on, I'm giving you all that you need. Hey, now that you're here, I'm going to stake a claim on your life. Today, the I is gone, right? When you walk down that aisle and commit to the other person at a marriage, today the I is gone. And when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is him who lives through me. It is Christ who lives in me. When your identity is changed because of your faith, 
all of a sudden God lays a claim on your life. And it's no longer okay for me or for you to kind of walk through my business and walk through my marriage and walk through my relationships, walk through my work, walk through my church and just think, I'm in, I'm good, I'm fine. If sloth is being lazy about love, the love that God has drawn us to. See, there's some, there's some of us who, who love to watch movies that highlight um, the honeymoon stage of a new relationship. I mean, who doesn't like that? Who doesn't enjoy those moments, those kind of inspirational moments of finally he got her or she got him or whatever it is, okay, and, and there's that moment they finally come together and everything's happy in the world. The fireworks go off and, you know, roll the credits and, you know, movie over. Those of us who've lived long enough understand, even those who haven't lived very long still understand, that love is more about doing the dishes and taking out the trash and changing the diapers in the middle of the night than it is about fireworks and romantic dinners, right? That love is that regular, regular, regular commitment every morning to wake up and in the making of breakfast for your spouse, in the taking out of the trash, in the service to your children, you are renewing that commitment of love day in and day out. But here's the thing. Here's how this works for us with our relationship with the Lord. That sometimes, for some of us, slothful people want the security of having God's love without the sacrifice of being made anew. Sometimes slothful people want to live in the honeymoon and just kind of want to be around people who know God and kind of want to just kind of come to church and hear and hear and hear. Just kind of want to listen to the right stuff on the radio or whatever it is and just kind of live life as I want to live it because it's my life after all. See, slothful people are the ones who are like, I want the security of having God's love. I want the honeymoon feel. I want to know that somehow I'm secure enough and so I'm going to be around a feeling of people who might seem to love God but don't want the sacrifice of having to be made anew. Don't want to have to go through the hard work transformation. Don't want to have to, if we go back to our analogy, walk across the house from your side of the room to God's side of the room, if you will, and say, I'm sorry, work on me, transform me, change me, because I know that you have drawn me and you love me, and I don't want to be lazy about love, no matter what it costs me. Sloth is being lazy about that love of God that drew us to salvation. Sloth has an impact on us. It hits us in a couple of key ways. Sloth's impact on us this way. Number one, we avoid people or experiences that challenge our values or identity. Here's where you can see sloth hitting you. If you feel like you have a regular resistance to doing things you know you should do related to your identity in Jesus Christ. In other words, man, we have to go to church again. Seriously, whose idea was this? They just sit there forever. Some guy talks, we sing, we pass the thing, and then, you know, there we go. Boom. Man, I got to go pray with people. Why would I want to do that? Like, I got other things to do. Bible study? Like, I I can't do a a Bible study because I've got stuff, you know, to do. You know, worship, you know, being engaged, you know, singing, um, giving myself to worship. Yeah, you know, I'll come and I'll kind of sing along, but people around me aren't loud, and I'm not going to be loud either. I'm not going to give a lot to that. The practice of being together in small group and relationship and accountability, like, Okay, you know it, right? The things that you know you need that will 
challenge your identity and help shape you and transform you into more, to become more and more like Jesus Christ, sloth hits us right there and says, ah, you don't need it, you don't need that. You don't need to go there. Come on out. You don't need to go there. It's going to be uncomfortable. They're going to make you, you know, like talk about stuff. You know, we don't like to talk about stuff. Sloth is being lazy about the love of God that has called us to what? Transformation. The call of God to, to faith in Christ is about crucifixion. You don't like it? Great, neither do I. Let's go do it anyway. This is sloth saying, hey, come on now, let's... Sloth is saying, you don't, you don't need it. It's not about... I mean, it's about you. It's about you. And sloth is being lazy about that love. So here's how it impacts us. It hits us when we're like, yeah, that might be good, but eh, I'm going to push. Or that person reminds me, they're, they're too fanatical. They're too devoted. They're too committed. If I'm with them, I feel a little guilty that I'm not like them, so I'm going to, mm, you know, kind of pull back. Here's how sloth hits us. It makes us pull back and avoid experiences or people that we need to keep transforming us. It's what sloth does to us. Number two, we're slow to respond to the demands of justice. We just tend to care less and less and less about, really, people around us at all. Our community, our business, um, co-workers, our schoolmates, um, our, our family, uh, and broader globally issues related to injustices in our community and our nation and the world. We just, just tend to care less. I mean, this is the idea of being apathetic. We just tend to care less because, after all, the world is about me, and as long as I'm good to go, we're, we're in good shape. So generally, we tend to care less and less about justice. And thirdly, we feel stuck between not liking ourselves and really not liking what it would take to change. If you're, if you're fighting sloth, here's how it hits you. It's like, ah. Oh, yeah, uh, it probably would be good. Oh, but man, I know how much it would take. It probably would be good if I could change that habit. It probably would be good if I could get accountability with that. It probably would be good if I'd be challenged to pray more. It probably would be good if I'd be challenged to actually be in community and confess. That probably would be good. <laughs> but not right now, man. I can't. It's just too much. So you feel kind of stuck between what could be and where you are and understanding really the challenge of what it would make, what it would take to change who you really are. This is where sloth hits us. So what are we to do? A couple of things. Number one, um, confession. Sound familiar? Confession. Have the conversation. Have the conversation. Again, this is not weepy cry moment over, you know, a special uh, violin number, you know, somewhere where the sun is setting, where you're just all tears and broken up like crazy. This is just a conversation. I mean, this is talking to people, you know, who you trust. He's just saying, listen, I don't know about sloth, but I think there might be something there. I think there's an area where I need to grow, and here's where it is. I think it's related to being good to my employees, the goodness, the fairness, the equity of our business. I think it's related to self-control. I've got a habit that I haven't been able to break. I need to start a habit that I haven't done. It's about perseverance for me. I need to stick through what I need to stick through. So confession, okay, have the conversation. Just, just talk about it with people. Drive it down below the surface of your normal conversation. Number two, value the routine. Sloth um, fights against the routines of, of our lives. One of the great remedies, if you will, to sloth is dailiness. Isn't that true for marriages? Isn't that true for commitments to your work, to your relationships? That the dailiness of your commitments is kind of what solidifies it and strengthens it. And sloth is like, you don't need that. You don't need that. You don't need that. But the dailiness, the routines of prayer, of community life, of confession, of study and knowledge and understanding who in the world God is are part of what we need to be about, valuing the routine. Number three, staring down your commitments. 
as we read about some of the early church fathers, even some who were monks. I wonder what it would be like to be a monk myself. I will never be a monk, just to clear that up. But the monks write about very uh, honest feelings they have, particularly between the hours of 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. And some of the ancient monks write about the feeling of kind of being stir-crazy from 10 to 2. I would write about the feeling of being stir-crazy from noon till the next noon. I mean, all the time. That would about drive me bananas, and so maybe I do need a day of solitude just to kind of deal with that issue. But they write about, in a very revealing way, from 10 to 2, there's something about that, because they've been up early since like 4 in the morning and made, like, I don't know what they made for breakfast, cornbread, meal, leaves, I don't know what monks eat, okay? And, and they, they've eaten that, and, and now they, they pray, and they're, they're now in this period from 10 to 2 where they'll write about um, the fantasies rolling through their minds. Um, where they kind of wish they could be doing something else, where they think, why did I do this in the first place? Why am I here? I'm in this little cell, and I'm supposed to be praying, I guess, you know, being, going through the disciplines of the day, very regimented day that they had, and for whatever reason, tended to was a tough time. And their basic answer to that, like, how do I deal with this, okay? You go to a monk psychologist, and he's like, let me tell you what you need to do. Stay in your cell and stare down your commitment. Like, come on, there's got to be more than that. No, that's, that's pretty much it. Just stay in your commitment. And in that staring down of your commitment, you will learn who you are in a way that you never have learned before. And so sloth is like telling you, hey, it's okay. Listen, I know you're committed to this. I know you're committed in your, your work to this. I know one time you've been committed to, God, whatever you want me to do with my life, whatever you want me to do with my money, whatever you want me to do with my career, my family, whatever you want. I remember sometime you said that. You committed everything to God, and now you've gotten a little distracted. And Sloth is like, it's okay to be distracted. In fact, why don't you work harder? Just work harder. Just keep working, because after all, work is our salvation. Didn't Henry Ford say that? Stick to the commitments, no matter how painful it is. In your relationship with the Lord, first of all, spouse, business, friendships, stay on the commitments. And finally, this, this point, walk across the house. Walk across the house from one side of your argument to the other, sometimes with yourself. We are like a house divided, was, is what sloth does. Sloth targets our identity and says, hey, um, I want to remind you that you can still be selfish. You can still be about you. You can still have a life focused on you. And sloth is this kind of onslaught against turning our lives completely over to the Lord in our willingness to be transformed. Sloth is really about being lazy, about love. It's about this lack of desire to really give to God the things that his love claims on our lives. It's not about being lazy about work, although there is an application for that. There's an application for a work ethic, but it really is about saying, God, I know you've called me, I know you've drawn me, I know you've sacrificed for me, but my commitments to you, I could take them or leave them. I could take them or leave them. A half commitment to you is better than nothing, right? I'll get more serious later. Sloth is really about being lazy, about love and the claim that it has on our lives, for you and for me, to turn our will over, to turn our desires over to God completely. This is why Peter will say, add to that faith, add to that fire that was started, add to that, add to it, a discipline, a regiment, routines, 
goodness, knowledge, growing in your awareness of who God is, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and above all, love. Add to that fire. Don't get lazy. Don't get lazy about the fire that was started in you. Don't get lazy about the transformation. Don't get lazy about the things that you know need to change. Don't get stuck between who you are and who you could be. And how do you get out of it? Confession. Routineness. Commitments. And walking across the room. Walking across the house. C.T. Studd once said, he was a famous, famous English cricketer, he once said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, there's no sacrifice that's too great for me to make for him. Right? If Jesus Christ was really God and he died for me, there's no sacrifice that's too great for me to make for him. I think he's spot on. This morning we have a chance to celebrate, to remember, to reflect on the death of Jesus for us. The death of Christ on the cross, the crucifixion, that drew us by love to him. We do that as we celebrate communion together. We reflect on his death, burial, and resurrection. And in that process of sharing communion with us, with one another together, here's what I hope this morning, that, that in the, in the um, drinking of the cup and the eating of the bread, that you can be reminded in a very tangible way what we all know and heard from Sunday school from little on up, as they say, Jesus loves you. God loves you. And God loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. And that love lays a claim, stakes a claim on your life and mine. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So this morning, as you take communion, here's my hope. That as you take it, the thing that you know you need to do, right? The habit that you know you need to change. The person you know you need to talk to. The value you know you need to embrace. That you say, you know what? Enough with the sloth. Enough about being lazy about love. I'm not going to do that anymore. Let's go for it. Confession. Routineness. Commitments. Make the walk across the house to deal with that issue. All right. So... I'd like to uh, invite the communion ushers to come on up. And as I do, um, let me pray as we kind of get rolling into this communion period. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning um, to get into your word here related to sloth. Peter's admonition, his reminder that you kind of start that fire in our heart and that you ask us to add to that these routines, these disciplines, these responses to God's love. And that in our busyness, we can get distracted from what we know we need to do in our relationship with you. And in our apathy, we can develop a cold heart toward justice and just stop caring about the things that we should care about with people around us. And I pray that you would protect us from both ends of that continuum and drive us to, remind, to remember that love stakes a claim on our lives and we have an opportunity to respond to that claim to give our lives again to make the commitments again to love you with all that we have we thank you for the opportunity to celebrate in our communion service this morning we pray this in Jesus name